with that, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 18, and we're going to continue our study in Jesus' apprehension and arrest. We're going to start this evening um, in verse 12 and read to verse 27. So John chapter 18, go ahead and grab a Bible, follow along with me. There is one in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one with you, you're free to, to crack open and use. So John 18, 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. And that other disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside, and the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and had Peter brought in. And the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, are you not one of this man's disciples? And he said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. And the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And so why do you question me? Question those who have heard me. They know what I have spoke. Behold, they know what I have said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby slapped him in the face saying, Is that any way to answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. And now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. It's one more word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you that this event in history was recorded, and that we here in Portland, Oregon in 2022 can learn from this event, that we can be taught by what transpired here, by what you did here, by the example that you gave here, that you led here. Pray by your Holy Spirit that tonight I would be quiet and we would only hear what it is that you have to say, that we would only be taught what it is that you have to teach. And that in a way that is impossible for any human being to do, that Holy Spirit, you would do the, the sovereign work of deity to convict, to convert, to correct, to, com to comfort, to illuminate in the, the eyes of our heart the truth of Scripture and to fall more in love with Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior and to, to be molded more and more into his image follow him closer, to follow him more dearly, and that our minds will be renewed by the words of Scripture, the Word of God, and by Jesus Christ himself. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. So, uh, as you may have picked up while I just read the passage tonight, or maybe you didn't, the, the distinction between preacher and teacher is sometimes very obvious, and sometimes it is not so obvious. And I am someone who considers, I consider myself a preacher 
And so wherever I'm, wherever I'm heading, I'm sitting in the driver's seat as a preacher. But oftentimes, teaching is not in the back seat. It's sitting shotgun. And tonight is one of these, one of these messages, one of these texts that requires some teaching. And so we get away a little bit from who Jesus is and what he's doing in the gospel. And we have to talk a little bit about what it, what's, what's going on here. We've got to get a little bit into Jewish and Roman politics. A little bit of understanding of, of what's going on. Because the questions have come again and again and again through generations. What, what, what's happening here? This doesn't make sense to me. Can someone explain this? And I will admit that we probably don't need to talk about some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight that are, that are more of sort of an academic, knowledge-based uh, lesson. But I think that because so many people have asked these questions, I'm going to sit over in the passenger seat a little bit and try to do just a little bit of teaching about what's going on here. But because that's the case, I want to, I want to pause for a moment before we get into verse 12 and following and just remind ourselves of where we are here in John chapter 18. What we looked at last week was that Jesus is in absolute sovereign control of what's going on here. He is sovereign and he uses that sovereignty to submit himself to his Father's will. We saw in, in 18 verse 6 that whenever these guys come up to him, probably a thousand people with spear and swords and clubs and armor and shields, they come to, to apprehend Jesus and he says, I am he, I am, I am. And these 900 to 1,000 soldiers and temple police fall down just at his word. He is not a victim. He is not failing. His arrest here is not God's plan falling apart. It is God's plan coming to fruition. He is letting them take him. He ha- we see his power. Then he heals Malchus's ear after Peter <laughs> chops it off. Again, showing that he is gracious, showing that he is kind, that he's loving his enemies, and showing that he is in control, showing that he has power. And yet the arrest continues. And I couldn't help but think about this, um, this progression of Jesus' arrest. And what we're going to see as we, as we go forward, him continuing to submit to the Father's will. When Peter tries to defend Jesus with, with deadly force, and he aims for Malchus's head, misses, hits his ear, Jesus doesn't say, hey, thanks for having my back. Jesus actually rebukes Peter and says, am I not to drink the cup that my Father has for me? He is sovereign. He is in control. He speaks a word, and a thousand guys fall over on the rear end. And at the same moment, he says, I am to submit to the Lord's will. That is, a, that is an amazing lesson to learn from Jesus. And he continues as his, tr- as his trial, quote, unquote, progresses. And I was thinking about this because I don't know if anyone here has ever stood before a judge or if you've ever been in the hot seat in court, but I have. And I remember sitting there in the courtroom, pretty sure that I was going to jail that day, and the intensity of emotion the, the, like the apprehension of what's going to happen next. There's, there's anxiety, there's stress. As, as cocky and bold as you were whenever you, you were doing your crime, it all goes away when you are at the mercy of a stranger. And my case got thrown out. I, I, I think that I lived through a miracle. The Lord threw, I had five charges against me. All of them got dropped, and I left that courtroom that day as if I had never done anything wrong. It was a miracle of God. It was incredible. And it's really what the Lord used to bring me into submission to him, to understand his mercy and his grace. And the reason why I bring that up is because I can only imagine that Jesus here, I mean, he knows what's going to happen, but he still has human emotion. And his time and time again, the witnesses that they bring, 
the, the very accusations that they bring against Jesus, all of it is faulty. All of it is, is, is chaos. None of it is cohesive. None of it makes any sense. None of it lines up. And yet he goes further and further and further into and toward death. And, as, and I try to put myself in that place because I was in that courtroom. And I imagine, like, what if a witness had come and said, Ian did this, and then another witness said, well, no, he didn't. He actually did this. And the judge is like, well, what is it? You guys aren't making any sense, but whatever. You know, I don't know what's going on here, but he's guilty. Throw him in. I would have been mad. Like, the, my, my witnesses are faulty. You don't have any evidence about this. I would have been so, I would have been cussing and yelling and screaming and spitting. And that's exactly what Jesus lives through. And so I want us to pay attention to his poise and to his power and to his control. Because all of this is him bound by love for us. All of this should inform our worship and our gratitude toward him because this is a really lame situation and he knew it was going to happen and he came and he subjected himself to it anyway in trust and obedience to his father for the glory of the father and for our benefit. And so they bind him. They finally have succeeded in getting this ragamuffin Jesus Verse 12, this Roman cohort and the commander of the officers, the commander came out. The commander thought that it was worth his time. The commander of the Roman army came out against a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter. Jesus was God in the flesh. And they could not explain it. They didn't understand it. But they even got their boss to come out here and take care of this guy, Jesus. I think it's amazing that the commander was there. All the things the commander could have been doing, and he comes after Jesus. They were taking this very seriously. The commander and the officers of the Jews arrest Jesus and they, and they bound him. So here is the one who comes to set the captives free. Remember in Luke 4 when Jesus first begins his ministry and he enters the synagogue and the attendant there hands him the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus reads from it and there's the line there in Isaiah 61, I have come to set the captives free. And then Jesus sits down, all the eyes are on him and he says in their midst, this prophecy has been fulfilled and you're hearing today. And Nazareth, the people of Nazareth try to kill him because he's claiming to be a Messiah, the Messiah. And so now the one who has come to set the captives free is not free. He is bound. He is chained. He is handcuffed. And Jesus lets them do it. He was providing a propitiation, a forgiveness of sins, taking on the punishment of that sins that were happening at this very moment for the very people who are committing the very sin of arresting him in his, in his innocence. And he knew that these guys that are arresting him one day would die and stand before judgment facing him. And yet in his humility and in his submission and his obedience and his trust to the Father, he lets this progress. His love for us is beyond comprehension. This is why it's so important to spend every day in the Bible because even, even in these seemingly innocuous moments, we see that there is much to learn from Jesus, much to learn, much to, to marinate on and comprehend and to, and to steep ourselves in and to pray, to become more and more this kind of person who's submitted to Christ, who trusts him no matter what's happening. We see Jesus living that out, living by example, going to the cross to pay for the very sins that we ourselves have committed. His love for us is incredible. And so they led him, verse 13, to Annas first. For Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. 
Okay, so here's where we have to pause for a moment and just talk some technical stuff. Because we're going to keep reading, and it, there's a potential for confusion here. What's going on? Annas, father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. That's what we just read. And Jesus goes to Annas. So let's just, Annas is over here. Annas is the father-in-law of the high priest. He's not the high priest. He's the father-in-law of the high priest. The high priest is Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas is over here. Now follow me as we go through this. So Jesus is led to Annas. And a line of questioning begins. And we see in verse 19 that it says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now we were just told that the high priest is Caiaphas. But if you turn an eye to verse 24... Following this, Annas then sends Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Okay. He goes to Annas, who's the father-in-law of the high priest, but then the high priest questions him, but then he's sent to the high priest Caiaphas. Uh, so you can see why I feel the need to address this. And I'm going to try to keep it simple. But basically, there's a few things at play here. And this, it, it confuses me a little bit, and so I feel in, like not worthy to, to teach this. But basically what's going on here is that Annas had been the elected high priest. We know in history that he, ran, he was ruling as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. And that through the course of history, five of his sons held the office of high priest. And, and now at this very moment, his son-in-law is in the role of high priest. Now that may not strike you as odd, but... If you know the Old Testament, you know that the high priest is elected once for life. There's one high priest, and he's high priest to the end of his life. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that there's been this molding of Jewish culture and Jewish law and Rome. And so to state, to state this simply, Rome had conquered Israel. Israel was a, was a, was a, was a conquered people living under the authority of Rome, and so they had some autonomy. They were a vassal state. They had some autonomy of their own, but really at the end of the day, what Rome said, that's what, that's what went. Rome was the rule of law. I think about it like, like a kid who's got a bedroom in their parents' house. It's like you have some autonomy in your bedroom. When I was a kid, my parents let me choose the paint color of the walls. They let me choose the carpet. It was red and black. It was awful. I was 14. Leave me alone. But I had a little bit of autonomy. You know, I could hang out in my room. I could play video games. I could watch movies. I could put, you know, however many skate posters on the wall that I wanted. I put a Britney Spears poster up once, though, and my mom was like, nah. Or maybe it was Christina Aguilera. I can't remember. But that was too much autonomy. But see, that's the point. I had a little bit of autonomy in my room, but my room was in my mom's house. And what mom said ultimately went. I had some semblance of my own rule of my kingdom, but if I went too far or did something that mom didn't really like, it was her word at the end of the day. And that's what's happening here. The Jewish culture, the Jewish people, the people of Israel do have some semblance of their own identity. Their culture is still alive, but Rome is waiting at any moment to throw a backhand and correct these people. And so... Jewish rule was that Annas was the high priest and he was still alive, so in the Jewish mind, he's still the high priest. But something must have happened. There must have been something that had gone on, and the Roman authorities said, you know what, Annas, get out of here. 
We're going to put somebody else in. Now, there's a whole long rabbit hole, deep rabbit hole that you can get into as to why Annas and then all of his five sons were also the high priest. What are they, some sort of sycophant? They're like the, the highest bidder for Roman rule. They're, they're exacting the, the, the most taxes to give to the Romans, so the Romans want to keep the family of Annas in power. There's some conjecture there we don't really know, but the point is, is that Annas is sort of the mafia don behind the curtain. Caiaphas has now been elected as the high priest. He sits in the seat. And he's the one who signs his name on things, but he doesn't do so without Annas's approval. Because to the Jews, Annas is still the high priest. And what they're doing here is similar to what we do here in the United States. Whenever somebody is president of the United States, even when they are no longer holding that office, we still refer to them as president so-and-so throughout the rest of their life. And so that's what's happening here. That's why there's a little bit of confusion. Annas was identified as the high priest. He was still alive. He was the one who, who had had that role. And for some reason now Caiaphas is in the seat, but Annas is still the high priest. He's still called the high priest. He's still thought of as the high priest. And so Jesus is brought to Annas before he goes anyplace else. He's the well, and I should, I should mention, we're actually, we see this in Luke chapter 3, where we read in verse 2 that this, that this took place during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. There, they're both, they're both named, both referred to as the high priest. And so Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now we read this, this is, this is exactly what happened in John chapter 11. After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, the high priests and the Jewish authorities got really upset because now people are going to go after this guy Jesus. He keeps doing all of these miracles. He keeps attracting a mass of followers. We've got to snuff this guy out. We read in chapter 11 verse 47 that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together so all of the Jewish big guys, all of them come together and they say, what are we going to do for this man is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you don't know anything at all. Shut up. Listen to me. I'm the high priest. He says, nor do you take into account that it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Now, it goes on to say that Caiaphas said more than he understood. Caiaphas didn't have in mind that Jesus is actually God in the flesh come to seek and to save sinners. He's just thinking in a national sense. But, what he, but you see his motivation here. He says he, the, the people are afraid, the Jewish authorities are afraid that if Jesus goes on like this, then the Romans will come in and take our place. So really what their motivation is is power and control and manipulation and greed and money garnering and, they're gonna, and still levying heavy taxes on the people and being warm and cuddly with the Romans so that the Romans don't bring in the iron fist for one reason or another. And what they're primarily afraid of is that this Jesus guy could potentially start a revolt. He could start some sort of insurrection, which happened all the time because, again, the Jews were a oppressed people. And Rome wasn't just some run-of-the-mill oppressor who came into a run-of-the-mill people group. This was their promised land. All through the Old Testament, we see these people fighting to get into this land and then fighting to sustain this promised land that Yahweh had given them. And then the Romans come in and levy heavy tax make rules for them, give them some semblance of autonomy, but again, at a moment's notice, we're going to come down on you. You better keep your people in check. And if this Jesus guy starts another one of these insurrections, I am telling you, 
I'm going to kill all of you, and then you, Caiaphas, Annas, whoever else, you're out, and we'll replace you with somebody that's competent. That's what's going on here. That's why there's so much fear about this Jesus guy. These, these Jewish authorities are liable, they're, they're, they're likely to lose their place if Jesus succeeds at whatever they think he's going to succeed at, if he succeeds in a revolt. We don't need Rome coming down on us. So you know what? It's better if Jesus just dies and there's no insurrection. It's better if Jesus just dies and there's no revolt. Think about how many innocent Jews are going to die if Jesus sends them into battle with the Romans. So it's just better, right? It's better if Jesus dies. So that's, that's what's going on here. So that's just some context and some foundation for, for where this apprehension and this fear comes from. And then for the final cherry on top Annas was upset with Jesus because Jesus had cost Annas money. In chapter 2, when Jesus goes into the temple and he sees in the court of the Gentiles buying and selling of animals and the people there, the Jewish people who are selling lambs and doves to everyone who's coming in and jacking the price up, rejecting the animals that they bring on the the, the category of this, 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 this some blemish here. Your lamb that you just brought from way up north isn't going to fit because it's got a blemish. It's not worthy. But hey, we'll sell you one of ours that's already been checked out with a 400% markup. I know, business. That money went straight into Annas's pocket. Same with the exchange rate. They took Jewish coins. So if you're coming from out of town, you had to do an exchange rate. If you've been to the airport in a foreign country, you know how this goes. And the, the percentage of, of of markup that they did for, for an exchange rate was also exorbitant. So it's just taking worship and turning it into black market business and that money went straight into Annas' pocket. So when Jesus went into the temple and turned over the tables and threw everybody out, he cost Annas money. And so Annas is mad. So when we, ha- when we have all that information, when we understand all that, we have some insight as to why Jesus was brought to Annas. First, Caiaphas and Annas already wanted Jesus dead. This is no trial. Jesus is already guilty in their mind. They've wanted him dead since at least chapter 11 and most likely before that. He's costing them money. He's threatening their position. They want this guy dead. And so Annas, to get a good look at this Jesus guy, has Jesus brought to him first. And now Simon Peter, following Jesus, was following Jesus and so was another disciple. And that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside at the, at the door, and so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So Peter followed. At this point, everybody has fled. We're told in Mark chapter 14, 54, that they all fled, they all left him, but Peter has come back to follow after his Lord, but he, he, he followed at a, at a distance. He kept distance between him and Jesus. And I think that we have much to learn from Peter throughout the rest of this text tonight. He loves Jesus too much to just abandon him. He loves him too much. He got scared in the moment. He went for Malchus's head. He books it. He hides somewhere. But then his heart must have broke and he's just too far from Jesus, and so he follows after him. And this is risky, but he also doesn't get so close to Jesus as to become fully identified with him. He's in between a rock and a hard place here, and I think that that's a very human place to be. It, it, it's not good, it's not right, but it is understandable. 
And I think that Peter has gotten a whole lot of hate throughout the generations for being the one who denied Jesus three times, and I'm, I'm not giving him a pass, but I also think that it's commendable that he was at least there. He failed, but he failed in a way that the faithful fail. He didn't just outright diss Jesus and bail. He, he you know, he, he wanted to hold on to him. His heart was, was, was torn. And so he's following Jesus at a distance. And then it says there was another disciple who was there, and Again, here's just another little bit of technical information. Who is this other disciple? Most people say that this is John himself, the guy who wrote this gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 2, verses 3, verses 4, and verses 8, we read, we read this. So Mary Magdalene comes and she runs. This is after that she realizes that the tomb is empty. And she comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they've taken away the Lord. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple went forth. Verse 4, so the two were running together and the other disciple outran Peter. It's like a humble brag right there. Verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and he believed. So the one whom, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple, the other disciple, the other disciple... Chapter 21, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. In verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who is writing these very things and is witness to them. So this is John. This other disciple, this disciple that Jesus loved, is, uh, is referred to as the other disciple. This is, this is John. John identifies this disciple as himself in chapter 21. And so it, it, it could be John. This could be John himself who is with Peter. But then everybody calls into question, but this, it's, it's identified that this other disciple is known by the high priest. And so the immediate question is, well, if this is John, how is John known by the high priest? Not just any old ragamuffin dude is going to be known by the high priest. And so there is, some, there, is, there is conjecture here. Some people say that John was related. He was, his wife was related to Mary. Mary was re- the mother of Jesus. Mary was related to Elizabeth. Elizabeth was John the Baptist's mom. And John the Baptist's dad was Zechariah, the priest in Luke chapter 2 and chapter 3. And so if John is related to Zechariah, who is a priest, then maybe he knows who the high priest is. That's one possibility. The other possibility is people say that John was a fisherman. And he was very successful because we're told in Scripture that he had enough, him and his father had enough to actually hire people as laborers. So they were somewhat successful. Maybe they sold fish to the high priest. That one seems a little far-fetched, but hey, these people are more educated than I am. And so on and on it goes. It was a small, some people say it was a small area. So John knew the high priest just because, you know, they went and they bought their LaCroix at the same grocery store or whatever else. I don't really know. It's not really important. Some people think that it's Nicodemus that knew, who was a Pharisee. And so he was there. Some think that it's Joseph of Arimathea, which in chapter 19, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Christ, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Some people think that the other disciple might be Judas. That because Judas had struck a deal for blood money with the high priest, that he then was running along with Peter into the high priest's court. But would Peter really have anything to do with Judas at that point? I doubt it. So we don't really know who this other disciple is, and it's not important, but I think that it's at least worth bringing up so that you guys can do your own studying if you have any interest in that whatsoever. So this other disciple who was known by the high priest, 
And they entered, verse 15, they entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Now this I think is pretty cool. We hear about the court a lot. The court of this house, the court of that, th- that house, the court of the high priest. What was this court? Well, official buildings were actually constructed in such a way that they were about three quarters of a square. They were shaped like this. And in the middle was the court. And so people could actually come in and they could debate with one another. They could talk. They could officially meet. But you didn't have to invite somebody in. It was sort of like a big front yard. And this was important to the Jews because they could do business with Gentiles. They could speak with Roman officials, but they didn't have to become ceremonially defiled by actually entering in to the residents of, of the Roman Gentiles or any other Gentile. We pick this up and later in this chapter, Jesus is led from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled so that they might eat Passover. This is the Passover. This is not a good time for a Jewish person to become ceremonially unclean by going into the home of a Gentile. And so, verse 29, Pilate came out to them. This is why during Jesus' quote-unquote trial, Pilate is coming in and out and in and out. It's because the Jews aren't going to go into his pad. So he acquiesced. He needs to keep these people somewhat happy so there's not an uprising. And so he comes out to them and then goes back in. So they bring Jesus into this court. And Peter was standing out outside the door, and the other disciple who was known by the high priest went and spoke to the doorkeeper and had Peter brought in. And then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, are you not also one of this man's disciples? And he said, I am not. So here we get back. So here now, I think I'm done with all of the, like, the banter about technical stuff. Now we get back to the heart of the issue. We have so much to learn from Peter here. I think that it's fascinating that Peter, standing before a thousand men with swords and spears, took out his sword, not even a big sword, but took out his sword and tried to go for a guy's head. Bold and brash, brazen, confident, maybe a little misguided, but confident. And now he comes to a child. Someone who's identified as a slave girl who's keeping the door. And she asked him a question and before her, he fails and denies knowing Jesus. And I think that if we take the time to just think, if we, if we think about what's actually happening here, I don't, I don't believe that it's so hard to understand what's happening to Peter. Peter was with the, other, the, other, the rest of the 11. I think there's a lesson for us here. When he was with them, He not only was with Jesus in his presence, but he also was surrounded by believers. And in that body, in that company, in that church, in that group of Jesus followers, the Bible tells us in the abundance of counsel there is safety. When Peter was with his guys, he had more chutzpah. You know, he had, his chest was more puffed out. He had more confidence. He was ready to go down swinging for Jesus. But now he's with the enemy and he's alone. And he gets caught off guard. This girl asks him a question that he didn't expect, and he responds in fear. Not to her, but just to the question, to the fear of what might be around her. Because she doesn't even ask the question with any tone. She's not angry. She doesn't say, are you with that insurrectionist? Are you with that fill-in-the-blank? Are you with that enemy of the state? She says, are you, are you, you're not with that man, are you? And he denies it. He denies it because he's afraid. He's de- he denies it because he's, he's caught off guard. He denies it because he's alone. And this worries me because I, I think about being a Christian at times more than I do at other times. I'll be honest with you, with, with, with what's going on in the world and faithful friends getting a Molotov cocktail thrown through their window and 
churches being burned down in other parts of the world and Christians being more and more actively and openly and publicly hated on. Every, every time I preach on a Sunday morning especially, I, I kind of prepare myself. What if this happens today? What if this happens in the next few hours? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? How am I going to respond? And then, I've, and then I've experienced this. Just in the moment, I'm just out grocery shopping or I'm out just doing some thing and the fact that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, somebody will ask me, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And that like <laughs> look that people have, and I'm not ready for it. You know, there's this part of me that wants to like wall up and hide and be like, oh, no, you're ne- I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor of marijuana and the goddess of CBD and THC. And we, you know, we sit around and we, we, we play the bongo drums and we smoke spliffs. And it's, you know, it's not one of those, it's not one of those churches. There's that thing in me that wants to like deny and disconnect because I, w- I was caught off guard. Friends, we have to repent of this. We have to repent of this. And we're going to continue to see where, where Peter is making a mistake and continues to make mistakes. But for now, suffice it to say that this is alive inside of us. Even the most committed Christian can have this weakness, especially whenever we're alone, especially when we're places where we shouldn't be, when we're isolated. This is an easy compromise to make. And so again, Peter failed, but he's at least trying, but he's also, he's also doing something silly. He's not being all that wise. And so he denies his Lord in the presence of this servant girl. He confessed Jesus rightly and explicitly in Matthew 16. You are the Christ. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for heaven and flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter had just sat through the upper room discourse. He had just heard the high priestly prayer spoken. He had just watched Jesus knock a thousand guys down with a word, and he still is this timid. How much more so is it true for us? We have to stick together, as we'll see here in a moment, And we have to be in the word. We have to be committed to Jesus. And when we're in the world, let's not be fraternizing. We can be there, but not a part of engaging with what the world is doing. Loving them in ministry and loving them by proclaiming the gospel, but not doing what the world does. Not warming ourselves by their fires like what Peter is doing here. But we'll get to that more in a little bit. So verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. What's happening here is not only a sham, is not only not genuine, but is actually illegal. Jesus is being interrogated at night and he's being interrogated directly. And Jewish law stated that it's, it's, it's sort of a, an ancient form of the Fifth Amendment. You don't have to say anything that's going to condemn yourself. So they would ask witnesses. They're supposed to ask witnesses. If there's, if there's been a charge against this guy where there's two or three witnesses, all right, let's hear what they have to say. And it's not recorded in John's gospel, but when they do finally bring in witnesses, the witnesses have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. But that's for a different It's for a different gospel or for a different book. It's for a different sermon. But Jesus here is illegally being interrogated and he knows it. And he gives a mild rebuke. But it's it's smart, it's mild, it's mild, but it is a is a rebuke. He's being secretly detained. He's in a he's in a trial that's a it's a total, it's a total sham, it's a total fraud. And it's happening at night when it shouldn't be happening. It's happening, it's happening illegally, it's happening without witnesses. And so Jesus says, I've spoken openly. 
You're going to question me. He says to him, I've spoken openly to the world, quite the opposite of what you're doing. I have nothing to hide. I spoke openly. It was public. I did it every day. I did it ubiquitously. I did it where other people could see, where other people could hear, where other people were attending. And you have me here in chains, in the dark, in secret, with no witnesses. And Annas knew better than that. He knew that what he was doing was illegal. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And so Jesus brilliantly offers this mild rebuke by saying, I, I've spoke openly. People have heard what I've said. He says, I, and I have said nothing in secret. And that doesn't mean that Jesus never had, a, had, a, had, a, had a, a private meeting where he spoke with his disciples. But it means that Jesus didn't have ulterior motives. He didn't say one thing from the mountaintop and then get with his cronies in a huddle and say, okay, here's what we're really going to do. As soon as we seize power then we bring the hammer down. What he said in public was the same thing that he said in private. He's not two-faced. He's not planning a coup. He's not doing something out here that everybody can see and then doing something here privately, which is really his malicious intent. He said, yeah, I have no secrets. I have said nothing in secret. I have said nothing that I am ashamed of. It's quite the opposite, actually. Jesus said things that were hard and were divisive and caused trouble out in the open. And he did it all the time. It's part of the reason why the Pharisees hated him so much. He said in John 8, 59, before Abraham was born, I am. Claiming the very name of Yahweh from Exodus chapter 3. Abraham might have lived and died a long time ago, but before he ever even existed, I am. And they were going to pick up, they tried to pick up, they picked up stones to try to kill him then, if you remember that story. He wasn't keeping that secret. He said it out loud. He forgave sins. He said it audibly in Luke chapter 5. And the Pharisees turned and like, who is this guy? No one can forgive sins but God alone. He taught that belief in him was actually the relief from sin. John chapter 8. He said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You can't say that unless you're an absolute lunatic or unless you're the absolute sovereign Lord. And today we still have to pick one. Who is Jesus to you? A lunatic who said mad things. Because if anyone says this kind of stuff, unless you believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. You throw that person out unless he's telling the truth and then you bow to him. Jesus is God in the flesh and we need to bow to him. Unless you believe in him, you will die in your sins. He went on to, and earlier in chapter 6, verse 29, he's asked by people, what, is the, what are the works, plural? What are the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work, singular. Believe in me. Believe in, believe in him whom God has sent. Believe in Jesus. He said these things out loud. He's not keeping anything secret. He's not trying to hide. Even the things that were hard, even the things that are divisive. He actually says that in Matthew chapter 10. He says, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Father-in-law against son-in-law. Mother against daughter. Father against son. Jesus will divide us. It's a hard truth. It's a hard saying. And it makes it all the more commendable and all the more real that he did not say it in secret. He said these things in public. It's part of the reason why he's in so much trouble. So verse 21. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard me. What I spoke to them, behold, they know what I said. Jesus is calling for witnesses. He's like, you know that you need witnesses. Why are you asking me? There's a lot of people, probably some of them. I wonder if some of the men, remember the men in chapter 7 who came to Jesus to arrest him? And they heard him speak and they went back to their bosses empty-handed and the authorities said, why did you not seize him and bring him? And they said, no man spake like this man. I wonder if some of those guys are here. 
Some of those guys who saw Jesus in action are now standing there quietly. And Jesus is like, hey, call witnesses. There's witnesses around. You guys have heard me say this. That's not in the scripture. I just wonder that. You know, when I'm sitting with my candle in my books, I wonder this stuff. And so when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby gave Jesus a slap saying, is that the way that you answer the high priest? And so Jesus' first physical strike comes. Micah chapter 5 verse 1 is fulfilled. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so Jesus is hit. And he continues to live by example. First Peter chapter 2 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile back. Look at his poise. Look at his control. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? What kind of court is this? Where a, a prisoner, where someone who's being charged can just get popped in the mouth for no good reason. And Jesus calls the guy out. And he's like, explain to me why you did that. And if there's no reason, then why'd you hit me? calm and poised, but also correcting. You know, you still hear that hint of him being like, come on, man, do better. But he's so controlled. Jesus is so inspiring here. Try to put yourself in his shoes. Try to imagine yourself surrounded by people that want you dead and remaining calm and remaining godly, remaining the, the exact imprint, the exact image of who Christ is, being conformed more into the image of his son. This is what the Bible says is to happen to us here on earth. And if we are far from Christ, we cannot do this. If we do not dwell in his word, the Bible tells us to have his word dwelling in us richly so that we can be people like this. And you know what this led to? Jesus continued this, and then he even prays for those who were putting him on the cross in the very moment that they were nailing him. And after his body, after he is, his physical body is dead, one of the Roman soldiers there, remember what he said? Watching this whole thing unfold, he stood there and he looked at Jesus' body on the cross. He said, surely this was the Son of God. How'd that guy know that? Maybe Jesus said something to him, but he definitely watched Jesus. Now, this isn't a, like, let's show the world who we are by what we do and not what we preach. That's not what I'm saying, but it is both. And we see Jesus' heart, Jesus' action, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' control. We see it in the things that he's doing and in the things that he's not doing. So bear witness of the wrong, but if, if I spoke rightly, why do you strike me? And so then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. <laughs> Peter, or Peter, Jesus was making Annas and his boys look dumb. And so he sends him away, sends him to Caiaphas. But now Simon Peter, back to Peter. Peter was standing and warming himself by the fire. And so they said to him, are you not also one of his disciples? You're not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it again. And we're told in Matthew 26, 72, that this time when he denied it, he denied it with an oath. And, one of the, and then one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. The third time Peter denies it, we're told in Matthew 26, 74, that he did it with cussing and swearing. He's getting more and more. And if you read the other synoptic accounts of this, it, you, get a, you get more of an idea that there's actually a group that's forming, that people are saying things in front of other people, and there's sort of this growing news flash that, hey, this is one of Jesus' boys. And Peter 
<laughs> he, he doubles down and he digs in his heels. And with cussing and, his, and with swearing and with an oath, he says, I do not know that man. I do not know that man. I do not know that man. And how this must have stung the relative of the very guy that Peter just tried to kill. You know, Peter was there with Jesus and with the other disciples. And he was trying to, de- he was defending Jesus to the death. And now he's standing apart from Jesus at the very fire and in the very company of the very people that he just tried to kill. It doesn't say Malchus was there, but Malchus's relative is. This is, I think, a warning to us. It's a lesson to us. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be fooled. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, I want to be careful here, but I want to be clear. We are sent by Jesus. During the high priestly prayer, he said, Father, as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And Jesus had a reputation, we're told, of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But it's not because he was doing what they were doing. And I think that it's easy for us to do this, and I, I have been guilty of this, to sort of put my Christianity on hold and set Jesus off to the side and go into the world with a bunch of people who are not believers and do not hold the scripture, who do not bend the knee to King Jesus and do all of the things that they do, and I just sort of blend in, warm myself by their fire and just try to remain quiet and enjoy my corporeal revelry and my disgusting lusts. I haven't done it in years, but I used, to, I used to do that. I'm just going to put Jesus on hold for a little while. And it's amazing how quickly we turn into this. And I love that the rooster crowed. Because you know what? We can sin and we can fail and we can fumble. And as soon as that rooster crowed, Peter remembered who he was. Peter remembered. He came to realize what he was doing. And he remembered what his king Jesus said. And I am a firm Believer, that if you are a genuinely born again person, if, if God the Spirit really resides in your heart, if you have really been born again, you, can't, you, can go try to, you can try to go outside the walls and you can try to go warm yourself by the fires of secularism and whatever else, but God's Spirit will not let you stay there. Galatians 5.17 says that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are at war with one another. First Peter warns us, Peter himself, this guy went on to write a letter that says, put away all of these lusts, all of these things that are at war with your soul. There is a battle going on. We see what the world does. We see the drugs and the sex and the, and the, the fame. And there is still this part of us that just wants that. But God the Spirit is alive inside of you saying, remember whose you are, remember who you are, and remember what you're supposed to do. Go into all nations and preach. Go into all nations and proclaim. And if you are living in a sin, in, in like a constant sin environment, if you're choosing to do things that are antithetical to God's kingdom, you will be absolutely miserable. And friends, I, should have, I wish that my mom would come up here and talk sometime about me growing up because I would, did that forever, for decades. I was so mad because I wanted to do what I wanted to do, but I was a Christian And God, this is just evidence that once you are in his hand, John 10, no one can take you out. Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Anything living, anything dead, anything in in the heavens, anything in earth? No. Anything in the future, anything in the past? No. Nothing can separate you. But if you claim to be a Christian, and you come to church, and maybe you lead a Bible study or a community group or something like that, and then you leave and you go live as if Jesus is not your Lord and King and you're not bothered by it, 
I'm, I'm concerned for you. We're, we're, we're told in Scripture, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13 to test ourselves. And here's, here's a test. When you go out into the world, are you comfortable? I told you that story. I know I'm going over time, but I'm pretty fired up. I, I told you guys that story about my friends who lived in South Korea for years and then came back. I mean, some of my best friends from high school growing up, and they're, they're atheists, they are, they are loud and proud, not followers of Jesus. They think that people who follow Jesus are stupid and closed-minded and ignorant. And I was sitting at a table with them. I hadn't seen them in years. And I was visiting with them, and I told them that I'm now a Christian pastor. And the look that they gave me, I mean, it was embarrassing. I was like, I, you know, yeah, but, but yeah, but no, you know what? I am. I'm a Christian pastor. I believe in Jesus. And at that moment, there was just this disconnect that I can't describe to you. But we knew at that moment, like, this friendship's over. It's over. And I felt like, I don't, like, I love you guys. I love you. And the memories that we have from the past were, you know, we had good times. But I am following Jesus now. Come with me. I can't, I can't, I can't warm myself by your fire. Can we interact? Can we talk about scripture? Can we talk about Jesus? Can I tell you about my faith? Yes and absolutely. If your car breaks down on I-84, I will come give you a hand. But I cannot, bad company corrupts good morals. I cannot unite myself with you. Paul says, what does light have to do with darkness? We can be in the world, but not of it. We're here. But we're here as Christians. And there's so many examples in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels of Jesus going into somebody's home who's not a believer and he ends up always making them uncomfortable because he preaches to them. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he gives Simon a parable. Simon was not a believer. And then says, I came into your house. You did not give me oil for my head. You did not give me water for my feet. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman has. He said that in the man's own house. Lovingly, kindly, not boisterous, not arrogant, not mean, not vindictive, not malevolent, but corrective and warning. And so... Are we doing that? Do we follow Jesus even when it's uncomfortable? Jesus stood before Annas and was bold. He knew what he had proclaimed. He knew what he had taught. It was not secret. He did not backstep in the face of death. And we're going to see in John chapter 19 where Pilate says to him, do you not know that I could kill you or let you go? And Jesus says, you have no power over me. You have some right now because it's been given to you, but you have no authority. Are we like that? Do we follow Jesus all the time comprehensively or as soon as we get away from the church, away from the body, do we crumble? It's, an, it's a good question. It's an honest question. It's a question that I check myself on daily. This Jesus, Jesus, God in the flesh, come to seek and to save sinners, submitting himself to the Father's will to go to the cross and be propitiation for our sins. He's worth worshiping. He's good. He's the God of the universe. Look at how much he's condescended to save us. He who came to set the captives free was bound so that we would be set free. He went to the cross and was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never have to be forsaken, even though we deserve it. When we see Jesus here being arrested and being led to a mock trial, we see what we deserve. We deserve that. And he took it for us so that we wouldn't have to. And so now he says, take up your cross and follow me. So friends, follow him. And we're going to fail and we're going to fumble and praise God that his mercy is new every morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. He is good. Amen? Amen.